One of the things that I love most about the church is its diversity. Not just the diversity in each individual congregation where you have a bunch of individual people coming together to make up one. That's what we're going to talk about a lot today and over the next few weeks. But the diversity in the church as a whole, from congregation to congregation, from church to church, from denomination to denomination, from tradition to tradition, we have different ways that we express our worship to God. From denomination to denomination, from church to church, you can have buildings that look differently. The liturgy or the order of the service is different from church to church. The way that we posture ourselves in worship can be different. And sometimes even the language that we use to describe the same things can be different. One of those places is in communion and in baptism. When we group those things together here at our church and in other churches and in other traditions, we call them the sacraments. In some churches and some traditions and in some other Southern Baptist churches like us, they call them the ordinances. In the Eastern church, they call them the mysteries. And I love all of those words for different reasons. When we talk about communion and baptism being sacraments, we're reminded of their sacred nature. That God took something very ordinary and set it apart as a means of grace for us so that we could experience God's grace in a way that we can touch, in a way that we can feel. I love the word ordinances because it reminds us of the weight of communion and the weight of baptism, that these aren't things that are just suggested for our spiritual health, but these were things that were given to us by God and commanded for us to use as a part of our worship and a part of our Christian lives. But I also really love the word mystery. And I was looking up a little bit about why the Eastern churches call the sacraments or the ordinance mysteries And on actually just the Orthodox Wikipedia page, which this isn't heavy-hitting research, but I like the way that it was worded, this is what it says. The sacraments, like the church, are both visible and invisible. In every sacrament, there is a combination of an outward visible sign and an inward spiritual grace. John Chrysostom wrote that they are called mysteries because what we believe is not the same as what we see. Instead, we see one thing and believe another. And I love that because it reminds us in these things that we do in the life of the church that there's something more going on beneath the surface. When we come to the table and we take communion, we're doing something physically. We're eating a piece of bread and we're drinking from a cup, but we're also reminded that there's something spiritual that takes place when that happens. That we're communing with Christ, that it's bringing us closer together, that we're confessing the same thing, that we're declaring the death and resurrection of Christ, and that we're being spiritually strengthened and nourished to do what we're called to do. When we see someone go through the waters of baptism, we see someone being dipped into a pool and brought back out. But what we know is that's a representation of what God has done internally as he saved them from their sins and forgiven them from their sins and raised them up to walk and new life. And so I think that explanation of, of what happens in the life of the church is important for us in the Western world. Because in the Western world, we have a tendency to need to explain everything. In particular, I think we have a need, at least I know I have a need, to simplify everything. If we can just reduce things down to the lowest common denominator, to the most simple explanation that we could possibly have, then it's something that becomes a lot more palatable, a lot more easy to digest, and a lot easier to explain. And while we should absolutely always seek to know God, and to know who God is, and how God works, and how we should worship Him, and who we are in Christ, we also have to remember that there is always something more, something unseen, Something mysterious about our God and about the way that he works and even about the faith he gives us and the way that we express that through the community that he's given us called the church. Paul uses the word mystery a lot to describe a lot of things. He uses the word mystery to describe salvation itself. He uses the word mystery to describe the union of marriage. And he also uses the word mystery to describe the church And in particular, the foundations of the church, where God created from nothing a unified body of believers, bringing together two groups of people who couldn't have been further apart when he took Jewish believers in Christ and Gentile believers in Christ and brought them together to be not just one organization, but one body. 
And so today we're going to look at that foundation of the church in Ephesians chapter 3. And as I said earlier, over the next several weeks, we're going to look through Ephesians 3 and 4 and see how God has called the church to operate and to work, and then to look at that and see, now, what does that mean for us, to steal Adam's terminology, as this local expression of God's church? What does that mean for Redeeming Grace Community Church and how we live and how we function and how we move as one? And so this morning we'll be in Ephesians chapter 3. Verses 1 through 13. This is God's word. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by working of his power, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace has been given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father, we do thank you for your word, and we also thank you for your church. And God, I thank you that while there are plenty of ways that we can see how you bring us together and how you unify us and how you make us one, that God, there is also something incredibly mysterious, something incredibly deep and incredibly spiritual that happens below the service where you bring us together not simply for a common cause, not simply as an organization, but God is one body that you unite us together as brothers and sisters in your family, as members of your house, and as sharers of the same inheritance and promise that you've offered to all of us through Christ. So, Father, help us to realize how beautiful the church is this morning. Help us to be amazed at how incredibly powerful you are. And, Father, also help us to know what that means for us as Redeeming Grace Community Church. Teach us to celebrate the mystery of how we're all here together this morning for one cause, for one purpose, as one body. God, we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Truth be told, I'm not great with the concept of mystery. I don't really like mysteries. I don't like surprises. I think, let's just go ahead and say I know that I'm a very good gift giver. I'm a very good gift buyer. I like really thoughtful gifts. I like to put a lot of thought into it. If I can, I like to put a lot of money into it if it's at all possible. And so I would pin the title on myself, Great Gift Buyer. I'm less of a good gift giver because once I have that in my possession, once I've taken hold of that gift that I want to give to somebody, I don't really like to wait for those milestones to roll around. I like to give them away as soon as possible. This has taken a while for my wife to get used to because Stephanie is a big stickler on sticking to the dates. She likes to have presents to open on her birthday, on Christmas, on our anniversary. She wants me to open presents on my birthday, on Christmas, on our anniversary. There's a very set thing because it makes much more sense in her point of view because that's why we're doing this to begin with. And so she likes to be very rigid to it. And so it just makes me anxious. When I bought the engagement ring, It was a miracle that it lasted as long as it did because it was literally burning a hole in my pocket. I could feel it getting hot. I don't know if it was just in my head, but I could feel it getting hot and it needed to be given to her because I had it and I was happy and I was ready to go. And so why wait? When it comes to movies, I hate watching suspenseful movies and I'm usually pretty good at figuring them out. 
because I've become so enamored with trying to make it happen. Because the longer I'm in suspense in a movie, the more anxious I get. And I don't have the conscience that it would allow me to cheat like my wife does. Because while we're watching a suspenseful movie and I'm anxious, she's on her phone on Wikipedia looking up the end of the movie. She told me yesterday, we just need to stop here. She told me yesterday that when she starts a book, that she reads the last page first. Who does that? Why would any, don't raise your hand, don't encourage this. This is not something people should do, but I get it in my head. I wish I could do that because the longer I'm in suspense about something, the more frustrated I get. And sometimes if a movie is particularly hard to figure out how things are going to go, I'm borderline angry three quarters of the way through the movie because I hate not knowing what happens. The only place that this is good, but it hasn't paid off for me yet, is I am incredible at Wheel of Fortune. And one day... I will at least get a new car out of Wheel of Fortune because I am really, really good. Dare I say probably the best. My family, my dad and my mom might try to tell you that they're better than me. They are wrong. It's not true. I'm really good. But it mostly comes out of insecurity. Either way, I don't like mystery because mystery reminds me that I don't have all the answers. It reminds me that there's something that I don't understand, that there's something that I haven't figured out. And because of that, there's something that's out of my control. And sometimes when it comes to our spiritual life, we can feel that way as well. We want to be able to figure out what's going on and why it's happening and how God is doing things and how it's all going to work out. But Paul seemed very comfortable with mystery. In fact, he says that word over and over again in this short passage of scripture that we read today. But Paul's mystery here doesn't seem very mysterious. Paul talks about the church and its foundation as a mystery. And to me, I feel like I can look at the church and I can understand it. It seems to be a really easy thing to dissect and figure out. You have a bunch of people who believe in Jesus and so they come together once a week and they do things together because we like to be with people who think the same way that we do and who do the same things that we do and who are about the same life that we're about. That's why we have clubs. That's why we have organizations. That's why there's entire groups of people based on their own hobbies. I've been spending a lot of time on a Facebook page that's a group for Xterra owners, which I didn't know was a thing until I bought a Nissan Xterra and then my transmission died in it and now all of a sudden I need that group. But I didn't know why had existed before, but now I do, because they've formed this kind of social community based around one common thing. And so it seems to make sense that obviously, if people all believe in Jesus, they would come together and be a part of one organization. But if we really look at these first, especially these first six verses, we get an understanding of how the church is so mysterious. Because Paul says, for this reason, and we'll talk about what that, that beginning part is in just a minute. I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And then he tells us what the mystery is. It says, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the same promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul says the mystery of the church is that God has done something that thousands of years of human history couldn't do. See, for all of, if we just want to look at the, the, the history of Scripture, all before the New Testament comes around, you have two very distinct groups of people laid out. On one hand, there are the Jewish people, and then there's everybody else, the Gentiles. And when we look through the Old Testament scriptures, we find that everything about these two groups is about as different as it could possibly be. The Jewish people were called out by God to be the people who were going to bring salvation into the world for the world, but that meant that they lived by an incredibly different standard. When we look at even just the Ten Commandments that God gave the people when they were going out of Egypt and into the Promised Land, these things that were going to be the defining features of who they were, these Ten Commandments would radically set them apart from the rest of the world. And that difference grew and grew, even though sometimes Israel would try to find themselves placed back in the middle of that. But every time they would follow in the ways of the Gentiles, God would become very displeased with them and bad things would happen. 
And even in around the time of Jesus, we see how distinctly different these two groups of people were, and they would refer to each other with really harsh terminology. They would call each other dogs, and they would look at each other as as completely separate entities and almost as something that's subhuman. They found no commonality between the two groups of people. But Paul tells us that the mystery is that God, through the power of Christ and the gospel, brings those two groups of people together. He tells us how in chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. And this is a big chunk, but listen with me as I read it. Paul says, talking to the Gentiles at the church of Ephesus, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at the time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross and thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows in a holy temple in the Lord, In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. He says there were these two groups. There was the uncircumcision and the circumcision. There was something physically that divided you. You were far off and the the Israelite people were near and you weren't part of the community. You weren't part of the covenants. You weren't part of what God is doing. But now, through Christ, he has torn down the veil. He's torn down the barriers and he's torn down the walls that once separated us and opened up salvation to the world so that I, Paul, and you, the Gentile people, who at one point in time were so far away from each other, now can not only be brought close together, but we can be made one. We can be found in peace, that the hostility between us has been put to death through the death on the cross. And so I love this passage that we are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And he says, through this amazing, miraculous, mysterious thing that God has done, bringing two people groups supernaturally together through the death and resurrection of Christ, he says, what I'm doing, what God is doing is building a dwelling place for God by the Spirit in your midst. And that is something that is incredible, something that is awe-inspiring, and something that is mysterious. This is more than a partnership or a common cause. It's a marriage. It's a bond between people. And it made these two groups of people who trusted in Christ to be one in Christ. And we're going to talk more about how this impacts our church directly and how this impacts the church all around the world now. But that's what God is continuing to do in our midst, bringing people who could be and should be divided all together under one banner and one heading as followers of Christ. And so they have this new identity. They have this new inheritance. They have this new promise that all comes through salvation in Christ. And it once belonged only to one group, but now it's been opened up to anyone who would put their faith in Christ. And this is a beautiful story, and it's a mysterious story, but it's also one that could be problematic. And so let's look at the three things that Paul tells us are involved in this mystery. In verse 6, he says, The mystery is this, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And so he begins by saying that the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers are now fellow heirs. Let's imagine that instead of a church service this morning, we're at a funeral. And a very wealthy older man has died. 
and we're all mourning his death. His family's on the front row. They're all very sad and upset about this. And then after the funeral is over, the attorney comes and he calls all the family members together and he says, okay, guys, it's, it's time to read the will. And so they all go into a room and they're all sitting around and the will is being read. And so everyone's a little nervous. Everyone's a little antsy because things get weird when people die, especially when there's money involved. And so people are silently thinking, oh man, I, I hope I hope he left me those plates that I loved. I hope I get, I hope I get the house. I hope I get more money than my brother. You know, I hope I, we start, they start dealing with all these things that are causing some tension and some anxiety because they don't know how this is all going to go down. And the attorney reads through the will, and one by one, every family member is completely satisfied. They think, yes, this is exactly what I wanted. This is exactly what I need. Man, grand, grandpa knew me so well. And left me such good stuff. And then they notice some noise in the back. And they turn around. And in the back corner, there's some guy that no one's ever seen before. And as all the, they're getting ready to leave, the attorney says, there's one more thing. And now, John, in the back, this is what you've been left. And he gets the exact same thing that everybody else has been given. And the family members are looking around. They're asking, do you know John? Have you seen John before? Have you ever heard about John? And nobody knows who John is. And so now they go from being really happy with their grandfather who left them such a great inheritance to thinking, how could our grandfather leave something to this person that none of us know? That's not fair. When it comes to these two people being brought together to take this inheritance and the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers, there's a lot of feelings that could take place. The Gentiles could feel a lot like John did. There's some excitement knowing that you're getting something based on nothing. You weren't part of the family. You didn't do anything for the grandfather. You had no stake in the game. And yet now you're getting this inheritance that didn't belong to you. And that's incredible. And that's awesome. And that's exciting. But on the other side, it could lead to feelings of inadequacy. I don't measure up to the family. I don't deserve to be here. I don't belong. I don't have the same history. This isn't right. For the Jewish people, it would have been an exciting time because this was the answer to the promise that Abraham had given. They were able to receive their hope. They're like, this is finally everything that God had promised. We see it in its fullness through Jesus. And so there's something really beautiful about God's inheritance being spread out. And they're amazed at the generosity of their father. But also there's a fear of losing out. The thought of what what are they getting that I'm not getting? How is God bringing, or how is our grandfather bringing this John guy into this to take something that rightfully belongs to me? That's not fair. And so there certainly could have been hostility between the Gentiles feeling like they don't belong. And we know that that's true because look how much effort Paul is going to to show them that they belong. And there is also certainly evidence in the New Testament that the Jewish believers in Christ had this feeling of, no, that's not right. You didn't have to go through what we went through. You haven't been here for the long haul. It's not fair that you're getting to share as part of our inheritance. And in the same way now, when the church is rightly composed, we're going to be made up of all different types of people who are fellow heirs in Christ. You'll have Christians who are legacy Christians who have gone to church for their whole lives because their parents went to church for their whole lives and their grandparents went to church for their whole lives, maybe even the same church. Maybe it's generations all in the same building and they've trusted in Christ from a very early age. And then you have people who are coming in from all different backgrounds and all different stories who may be coming in at the end of their life after living a life that did anything but honor Christ and now come in to celebrate the goodness of God and have been drawn into salvation by God's grace and God's mercy. And when all of that happens on both extremes and everywhere in between, it can cause tension. Because the legacy Christians start to think, you know what, that's not fair. It's not fair that I have spent my whole life serving God and believing in Christ and doing all the things that I thought were right, and now this person just gets to come in and take something that also rightfully belongs to me. On the other side, people can come in to church with feelings of inadequacy, and they can look around and say, I, I don't belong here. 
Look at that person who they've been a follower of Jesus their entire lives and they've always done everything right and they've always followed the rules and they seem like such a better person than me. It's not fair and it's not right that I somehow am entitled to the same inheritance that they are. But this response is built on a false view of salvation and a small view of God. Because we have to remember that our salvation doesn't come by works or proximity. That our salvation doesn't come because of what we've done or how long we've been doing it. But our salvation comes by grace through faith and that's all. That it's a free gift of God not based on who we are so that no one could ever boast. But we also have to remember that our God does not have a limited estate. That when more people come in to be a part of the kingdom of God, of the family of God, when more people come to partake of the inheritance of God, that doesn't mean that there is less for me. Because we have a God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. We have a God who has riches beyond measure. We have a God who has the kind of love and kindness that he's able to, as Paul says, lavish on us. That he doesn't have to be stingy. That he doesn't have to be cheap with his grace and his mercy. And he doesn't have to be cheap with his inheritance because he could have more than we could ever need. A couple weeks ago, we talked about Jesus and the the loaves and fishes when he fed 5,000 people with what seemed like nothing and then had 12 baskets left over. That's how God's grace works. That's how the inheritance that comes in Christ works. There is no limit to it. We're all not taking a little piece of the pie and then one day the pie will run out, but God's grace and his mercy is limitless. And so for all who come, we get the equal share that doesn't belong to us, that belongs to Christ. And so our inheritance will never run out. And so we should find joy in God bringing together people from all different walks, from all different places, all to come to be fellow heirs in Christ, because there's more than enough to go around. The salvation of God reaches beyond the obvious to the unexpected. To all who call upon the name of the Lord, and his inheritance is as limitless as the love that bought it for us. The mystery isn't simply that the Gentiles are fellow heirs with the Jewish believers. The mystery is that any of us get to be inheritors at all that any of us get to be at the table of God at all. And so when we see us come together as fellow heirs in Christ, when we look around the room and see all the different people with all the different stories, we should be in awe of the work of Christ that could save any one of us. Because we can all sing the same song about the amazing grace of God that saved a wretch like me. And that's the amazement that Paul had in Ephesians chapter 2. Not simply that the Gentiles were brought in, but that Paul himself was even allowed to be there as well. And so as the church, we have a call to celebrate the inheritance that binds us together. And to find joy in the fact that we are fellow heirs in Christ. That anyone who's trusted in Jesus for salvation, we have the exact same inheritance. And it's more than we could ever ask for. So he says that the Gentiles are fellow heirs in Christ. He also says that the Gentiles are members of the same body. When I was a kid, I really loved the Power Rangers, which now seems like a very relevant illustration because there's a movie now, which is kind of weird, and I feel like they're trouncing on my childhood. Just let things stay in the past, and let's feel nostalgia for it. We don't have to dig it back up. But there is a movie. I haven't seen it. Probably won't. But when I was in third grade, I was really into Power Rangers. Now, if you're unfamiliar with Power Rangers, here's the gist of Power Rangers. There's a small group of teenagers, five of them, who were selected to be defenders of the earth against Rita Repulsa, who was a very bad lady and lived on the moon and wanted to take over the world. And so they were given the ability to morph into these ninjas who were powered by the essence of the dinosaurs that they represented. Saying it out loud, it's very strange. But so they would morph into these ninjas and to help themselves defend against Rita Repulsa, they were also giving zords. The Zords were robots that they could get in and control that looked like the dinosaurs that they were living out the essence of. This is just getting very bizarre. So they would drive these Zords, but then that wasn't all, because if they really needed some extra help, they could bring all of their Zords together to form the Megazord. And the Megazord was made up of each of these Zords put into place as this big battle armor. And they would all sit up in the head all together. And it was amazing because they had these little coins and they would stretch them out into these crystals and they would plug them in and then they would drive the Megazord. 
And I always thought it was amazing that they could drive the Megazord in such an amazing way that it could fight like a ninja. Because each one of them only controlled their part. And so if your part was the leg, you controlled the right leg. And that's all that you did. But they worked in perfect unison. And it was amazing because I'd seen other TV shows where that didn't work. Like the little rascals when they would try to stand on top of each other to form one giant person and it never worked out so well. Or the Muppets when they made Muppet Man and then all fell apart. Or even when you watch people get in one of those horse costumes where somebody's the back end and somebody's the front end and it just never really looks right because when you get a bunch of people together, it's hard to move as one. And when God calls the church together... When God brought the Gentile believers and the Jewish believers together, when God brings each and every one of us together through faith in Christ, he doesn't only give us a common hope, but he gives us a common purpose. And that's particularly amazing in the case of the the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers. Because we are seeing thousands of years of cultural and geographic and moral differences set aside so that they can come together and function as one. They brought all their baggage. They brought all their difficulties. They brought the fact that they were all moving in two different directions, and God brings them together and sets them on the same path and calls them to work as one. God makes them, just like he makes us, one body to function together, to serve together, to work together, to operate together, and that is a pretty incredible mystery. See, the church is a really beautiful thing because what God has done in the church is that he has crafted an elegant choir of redemption made up of strangers and friends and family and even enemies who are united by nothing but Christ. And he calls us to lift up our voices and move our lives to the rhythms of his grace for the sake of the gospel. God calls us to live in harmony. And we're going to spend a whole Sunday talking about the harmony that we're called to live in with the gospel. But before we do that, before we move on any further, let's talk about harmony because harmony is a beautiful thing. And so if Lydia were to come up and to start singing, we all know that Lydia can sing. And as she sings, we find that the note that she sings is beautiful. But then if Hannah came up and added a lower note, and then maybe Becca came up and added a higher note, Lydia would sing her note, and then Hannah could join in, and then Becca could join in. And while the note by itself was beautiful, when all three of them sing together, we have something that is exceptionally different. And we go from just having one note to having music. Thank you. And that's what harmony is. That's what the church is, taking all of us and our individual gifts, you guys are good, and our individual skills and our individual notes and binding them together, taking one at a time, taking something that's beautiful all on its own and stacking it together and having it work in unison to create something that is exceptionally beautiful and exceptionally wonderful and something that we could never accomplish on our own. Now, when it comes to Christian harmony, when it comes to working as one, it requires a lot from us. It requires humility. I'm going to go back to the Power Rangers example because I want to. Somebody had to be the leg, and that person had to only drive the leg, and that was their calling, that was their specific gift, that was they were meant, what they were meant to do. And if they tried to be anything else but the leg, it wouldn't work out because if you had two right legs, then you wouldn't be able to walk. If you had no legs, then it wouldn't be able to walk. If you were missing an arm, it wouldn't be able to fight. And so each of these little Power Rangers, this is just a weird illustration, but these Power Rangers had to function together and to do their part, which means they had to accept their part. When it comes to the harmony that Lydia and Becca and Hannah were singing, If one of them decided to be particularly louder than the others, it would create something a little more dissonant. It wouldn't sound the same. And so when they sing the harmony, they have to be cautiously, consciously aware of what's happening around them so as not to overstep so that they could be one. And instead of being an individual note, they were a chord. Paul understood this very well. 
Paul says of this gospel in verse 7, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. Look what he says in verse 8. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Paul says, I get to be the apostle to the Gentiles. That it was through the grace of God that he allowed me to come to you at Ephesus and come to the Christians at Galatia and come to declare to them all the goodness and the promise that comes to them in Christ, even though I don't belong. Even though I'm the least of all the saints and I'm the least of all the apostles, God has given me this incredible gift to be able to fill this incredibly important role in the life of the church and in the life of the kingdom of God. And what we see in this passage is that it's Paul's humility that enabled his cross-cultural ministry. That Paul was able to step back and say, whatever I need to do, Whoever I need to be in the body of Christ, that's exactly who I'm going to be, and that's exactly what I'm going to do. And that's the case for each and every one of us when it comes to the life of the church. To function as one body, we have to have a certain level of humility to understand that we are not one in a group of many, but we are one body made up. Of many, and that each of us have to do our part well, but also do our part with humility, realizing that what I bring to the table is not the most important thing, that Christ is the most important thing, and his gospel and the gospel of Jesus going out to the world, that's what matters. And so whatever else I have to do, we take that posture of humility so that we can do it well. It also requires awareness means that we have to recognize our own gifts and our own value because I think that's really important and sometimes under the guise of humility we have a tendency to put ourselves and our giftedness down. And so we rank different gifts and we say, if I don't have this, this, or this, I don't really matter. But we have to be aware of the fact that God has gifted each and every one of us individually to serve a very crucial and a very important role in the life of the church. But we also have to be aware of the giftedness and the value of those around us. In the same way, with with the three-part harmony here, to know if you're too loud or too quiet, you have to listen. You have to be aware. Each person, Lydia had to be aware of Hannah and Becca. Becca had to be aware of Hannah and Lydia. Hannah had to be aware of Becca and Lydia. All three had to be listening to one another as they sang so that they could know exactly where they needed to be. And so we need to be able to not only be aware of the gifts of others, but we need to affirm the gifts of others and celebrate the gifts of others and be able to help people push forward when they need to push forward and draw back when they need to draw back. But to do that, we have to have the awareness of knowing what's going on around us. It obviously requires love. No, we care for one another because we can't look at one another with humility or we can't be aware of one another's gifts if we don't love each other and care for each other. But most importantly, it requires the gospel. Because the mystery of the church is that we are brought together as one. That through Christ and through what he's done for us on the cross and through his resurrection, we're not simply an organization. We're not simply a club of people that happen to have the same beliefs and like to do the same things. But we are one body with one purpose. And we're supposed to move together as one, being humbly aware in love through the gospel of everything that's taken place around us so that we can move as one body. And that we can also partake in one promise. Because Paul says that the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and also partakers of the promise. There are plenty of tangible things that show the church's unity. Just the fact that we're here this morning shows something about the unity of the church, that all over the world, that churches are meeting on Sunday morning and celebrating and worshiping. Just a few minutes ago, we sang songs together. We offered confessions together. A few weeks ago, we served together at Walton Plain Community. And in a couple months, we're going to have our community group starting. We're going to have some more opportunities for us to serve. We'll go and do fun things together. We can go to one of those weird places that you have to escape out of together, which I've never been to one, and it seems very stressful. I'm not claustrophobic. I just don't really trust people. And so that we could do that if you want to, but there's all kinds of things that we can do to show our unity. There's all kinds of things that we can show that we belong together. But those are really all just outward expressions of something much deeper. 
Because at the core, what really binds us together is something that can't be seen, and it's something that can't be felt. And it's a promise. We know that we have a God who is a promise-making God. From the very beginning, God has made promises and God has kept his promises. And in chapter 3, we see the fulfillment of a promise that God made to Abraham thousands of years before this took place. Because God said to Abraham, one day your people, your descendants, your children are going to be a blessing to the entire world. And that's what's happening when Paul is teaching in Ephesus about the Gentiles being brought in. Because through Christ, who was born under the law, who was born a Jewish man, God brought salvation into the world to anyone who would trust bringing together people of all nations and backgrounds. And we see that promise to Abraham fulfilled right here in this passage of Scripture. When we look at all of God's promises from beginning to end, we see that they have one common theme and they're pointing us to one common place. And in 1 John chapter 2, verse 25, John has a very simple statement that lets us know what that promise is. John says, And this promise that he made to us, or he says, And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. That is the promise that we're all partakers in. That we believe the truth of what John says in John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that anyone who believes in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. That Jesus came to offer this promise of hope, of new life, and life that will never pass away to anyone who receives it. And all of us who trust in Christ and who go through the waters of baptism and who are part of the church of Jesus Christ, we all sit under that same hope and that same promise that we one day will be with Christ for all of eternity. And in verse 6, Paul tells us what that promise is. He says that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's the entrance requirement into the church. Again, it's not based on how long you've been here or who you are or what you've done. The only entrance requirement into the body of Christ, into the family of God, is trusting in Jesus for salvation. Is believing that truth that God loved the world so much that he gave Christ. And if we trust in Christ and believe in his death and resurrection, that we can be saved and the old is past and the new is come and we'll be forgiven of our sins. And so if you're here and you've never trusted in Christ for salvation before, this is the good news that we talk about every single week. That it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what your background is. That through Jesus, he has opened up this beautiful plan where if we trust in him for salvation, we can be saved. And there's something mysterious about it. And there's something indescribable about it and it's not fair and it doesn't make sense sometimes but it's true that God offers salvation as a gift to anyone who would receive it and if you've never trusted in Christ for salvation before then I want to encourage you after the sermon Lydia is going to play quietly for a little bit if you want you can come and talk with me Pastor Adam is halfway back Pastor David is on the very back row you can talk with any one of us about what it means to trust in Christ for salvation and to go through the waters of baptism and to be a part of this promise that Jesus gave to his church and it's a promise that not only changes our eternity making us fellow heirs It not only changes our identity, making us one body in Christ, but it also changes our purpose. It changes what we live for. In verse 10, Paul says that God did all of this so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he had realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. You see, it's the role of the church to put this mystery on display. He says that through the church, God, we're supposed to make the manifold wisdom of God known to everybody. 
that people should be able to look at the church and see who we are and see how we function and see how we love each other with a Christ-like love and work together in unity and work together in harmony for the same purpose, for the same cause, sharing in the same promise. People should be able to look at us and see the glory and the power and the awesomeness of God simply by how we conduct ourselves and how we live as the church. Paul says that this was the eternal purpose of the Lord, to create the church so that we could show God's glory to the world. I almost found a video of this, but I didn't. If you've ever heard Mongolian throat singing, it's a weird experience. If you haven't, look it up. You can, it's Tibetan throat singing, Mongolian throat singing. There's another word, I think it's Turvian throat singing. It's all the same thing. I heard it for the first time in college. And I don't think I talked to anybody for about 10 minutes afterwards. Because in, in this, this type of singing, you have one person, one person all by themselves. And that one person is able to manipulate their throat and the tones of their voice in a way that allows them to sing three notes at once. It's really weird. You guys are going to go get on YouTube as soon as we're done, aren't you? So imagine what Lydia, Hannah, and Becca did, except instead of three people there's one. It's not quite as pretty as what they do. It's, it's a little harsh, but it's still amazing. And the first time I saw that happen, I, I didn't know what to say. I was watching a concert with a few of my friends on, on TV, and when it was over, we all just thought, what did we just see? How is, that, how is that one human being making three noises? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit into our consciousness because when I talk, I just make one noise. And if I made two noises, I would be really disturbed about what just happened. And yet this guy has such mastery over his voice that he can sing three notes at one time. And I think there's a certain element to that that shows us how we should, people should respond when they see the church working. They should see a group of people who come from different backgrounds, different places, with all kinds of different stories, who come together not just because we believe the same things, but because something has supernaturally put us together and made us one. And so we should move in such a dynamic rhythm, such, a, such an element of unity and love, that people see the church, and instead of saying, oh, those Christians... They're always divided, they're always fighting, they're always bickering, they can't get anything right. They should look at the church, not just our church here at Redeeming Grace Community Church, it should start here with us, but the church all over the world. People should look at the church and say, how do they do this? How are they able to take so many different people in so many different places and from all of these different regions, how are they able to function in that kind of a way? How is their harmony so tight? It doesn't make sense. We should function so closely to our calling as the church that people are astonished by what they see. When you go somewhere that's just full of nature, when you see mountains or waterfalls, it's hard not to be struck with awe. And sometimes even the most ardent non-believer can look over nature and say, how did this come into being? How could someone create this? How could God think up such beautiful colors? And how could God shape the landscape? And it brings them to a place of awe. Is that how people feel when they look at the church? Do people see such beauty? Do people see such harmony? Do people see something so inexplicable that it leaves them saying, there has to be something more? That's how it should be. And that's the goal that we should have. That should be our deepest desire at Redeeming Grace Community Church. That when people see what we do, when people come in and visit with us in church, when people see our members out serving together and fellowshipping together, when we start these community groups, if someone were to come into someone's house and see how we love each other and care for each other and support each other and go out and serve the world, they should be left dumbfounded thinking, I've never seen anything like this before. I want to know how It works. God began the mysterious work of the church by uniting Jewish believers and Gentile believers as one. But he didn't stop there. 
That's how God founded the church, and that is how God has continued to build the church from decade to decade, from century to century, from millennia to millennia, and that's how he continues to do it today, bringing together people who may have some common interests or people who may should be outright enemies, but by breaking down the barriers through the power of the gospel, he brings us together in this mystery of the church. And so it's our calling, and it's our responsibility to live out the mystery of the church and to reach out to all peoples from all places in hopes that they would become fellow heirs with us to the gospel and to operate in a way as one body that is noticeable and astonishing to everyone who sees it and who will bring the glory of God and put it on display everywhere that we go as we declare to the world the promise that we have in Christ, that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. And because of that, I am an heir to an eternity that belongs to Jesus. I am a member of one body that I didn't belong to, and I have this promise that he will never leave me or forsake me, and that one day I will be with Christ in eternity forever. As I mentioned earlier, We're going to be looking at the church through Ephesians 3 and 4, but we're also going to be thinking about our church. We normally do this towards the end of the summer every year anyway, because the fall brings with it an opportunity for a lot of new ministries, a lot of new opportunities to serve, and a lot of things that will be going on in the life of our church. One of those things, we're starting our community groups, and I know that we as a staff, and, and hopefully you guys as a church, believe that this is going to be a really important time in the life of our church. Because these community groups aren't going to be designed to be just some sort of extra Bible study for our church people, but these are going to be missional communities in neighborhoods all over our city where we invite people in. This will be a new doorway to our church where we invite people in to come and experience the love and the mercy of God through the love and mercy of his church. And so we need to be praying for our community groups. We need to be praying for the people that they're going to reach out to, praying about the people in our own social networks who we can invite not only to be a part of the church on Sunday mornings, but to these community groups and the things that we're doing. We're going to have opportunities to reach out to different places in our community, in our state, in our nation, and in our world over the next year. And so with all of that stuff coming, we're going to be having some new things that take place on Sunday mornings, all kinds of things happening starting in September. And so... Based on scripture, it's very important that we dedicate ourselves to prayer and fasting as we enter into this new season. And so like I said, during the welcome time, next week we're going to start a period that will last a little over 40 days. I was hoping it would be 40 days. It's a little over 40 days, so it's not so nice and tidy. It's about 42 days. But every week up until, what is it, Adam, that community groups start the second week of September? Every week up, every week up until the second week of September, I'm going to ask everyone who is either a member or an attender of Redeeming Grace Community Church to take Monday through Saturday and spend time fasting and in prayer. And that doesn't have to be a total fast from food. There's all different kinds of ways that you can fast. People fast from all food. People fast from certain foods. People fast from one meal a day or one meal a week. Some people fast from technology. There are so many things that we can do, but the purpose of fasting is to remove something that is a constant in our lives and to replace that with a time of prayer and seeking God. And I want to encourage you during that time as you fast and as you pray to pray for our church to pray that you would be aware of your gifts and your ministries and places that you can serve as we move forward as Redeeming Grace Community Church, but also pray for the things that are already taking place here, the doors that God has already opened, the doors that God will open, that God will continue to grow us together, that God will add people to our numbers, and that we will have opportunities to share the gospel, not just here in Loganville, but in other parts of our state, other parts of our country, and then even another part of our world as we answer the call to be the witnesses to Christ everywhere that we go. And so I want to ask you to be thinking and praying over this next week about where you'll be willing and how you'll be willing to fast and how you're going to be planning to pray. And then next week, as we look at Paul's prayer for the church in verses 14 through 21 of chapter 3, we'll also be laying out our prayer for our church as we go forward so that we will be able to continue. And I think that's important because we've done such a good job in our, our short time of existence. And we would continue to answer the call to show the mystery of Christ through the world, through our love and unity with one another, and our love and passion for the world around us as we seek to glorify and love God with our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength.